I've got Major Matthew Kavanagh here with me this morning at West Point. Matt, can you just give us a quick background about who you are and what you do here at West Point? Yeah, um, I, uh, I teach the military strategy course, uh, which is part of the Defense and Strategic Studies program at West Point. Um, it's a sort of a timeout from my uh, broader uh, position and job in the Army. As an Army strategist, uh, I started in the Army in 2002. Uh, when I graduated from here, from West Point, uh, I was a field artillery officer originally uh, and served a couple years in Iraq. Uh, but the, the size of this military that I'm a part of is such that uh, a few hundred officers uh, from many different branches at some point in their career elect to become uh, functional officers. So we have some uh, linguists, for example, Korean linguists or uh, German foreign area officers. Um, but I'm, uh, my role is as an army strategist, which is to say uh, that senior military figures in our combatant commands you know, most familiar to Australians would probably be U.S. Army Pacific Command or U.S. Pacific Command. Uh, those senior officers have staff officers at those levels that support their decisions. And, and that's one of the typical roles that I might have in the future. Uh, but for now, uh, I teach military strategy and am intimately interested in and familiar with uh, strategy as it pertains to and relates to uh, junior military officers. Okay, so the first question that I really have for you is what's your vision of conflict in the future? Mm. Well, aside from the fact that I hope none of them happen because I have a two and a half year old daughter that I don't want to be away from, um, I think that the easiest way one can conceive of future conflict is something that actually uh, David Kilcullen has commented on, someone that would be familiar to the listeners, uh, but also uh, a mathematician named Lewis Fry Richardson, um, and, and you ought to look him up. Uh, but he looked at uh, what he referred to as uh, the statistics of deadly quarrels, which was a mathematical appreciation and understanding of war and conflict um, from a 200-year period uh, from, I think, the mid-18th century until the mid-20th century. Uh, and what he found was, and this is something that's pretty uh, simple, is that there were a few very large wars where many people died um, that uh, composed and comprised uh, you know, many conventional uh, battles and war uh, conflicts. Uh, but on the lower end, uh, there were many uh, small conflicts with few casualties. So I think it's reasonable, any reasonable observer would assess that uh, our future is likely to contain many uh, conflicts with a few casualties. Uh, so on the lower end of the intense, uh, intensive scale uh, and some big wars potentially on the horizon in the future, uh, with many casualties. Uh, Admiral J.C. Wiley uh, is famous for categorizing and binning military strategies in two different ways. Uh, one, sequential, and that's sort of the way that we traditionally think of military operations. Uh, one action 
precedes and follows after another. Uh, you could think of, for example, the push into the European continent. You know, first you have to establish a beachhead at Normandy, and then you have to push across France uh, before you eventually uh, make your way to Germany. Uh, but similarly, uh, there are cumulative military operations where a number of independent actions aggregate and come together uh, and ha register a strategic effect. So you could think of uh, submarine uh, blockade, the American and allied submarine blockade of the island of Japan in the Second World War, uh, which by the end of the war constricted the Japanese to about half of the shipping that they had pre-war. Uh, so, you know, you can kind of look at those two almost paired, uh, you know, the idea that there would be a big war. Uh, you could think generally that sequential military operations would fit more with that sort of a conflict. And in a smaller, more likely to occur conflict, that cumulative military operations uh, would fit more with that paradigm. Uh, I uh, don't know what it what will happen, but I think that generally that can, you know, the same way we think of earthquakes, you could think of as uh, what we might see in the future. We don't know exactly how big they'll be, uh, but we know that they will occur. It's just a question of where and how intense. For a junior commander who may be the eyes and ears on a battlefield, what role do you see them playing um, in that vision that you've just described? Uh, my, my comments are probably going to be pretty generalizable again. Um, but, you know, when you're a member of the profession of arms, um, you know, just like the, the medical community or the, the legal community, um, there are certain responsibilities that come with that. And when society asks you uh, to, you know, invites you to put on a uniform and, and earn your commission, uh, they're, they're, expecting that you are imbued with a sense of military judgment, um, that you have the ability to navigate through very complex uh, physical and mental terrain on a battlefield, which is one of the most frightening uh, places that you'll ever find yourself in. Um, you, what does that mean? What, is, what does military judgment mean? Well, for a junior leader, it means the ability, to me at least, the ability to relate your tactical actions, the things that you're physically doing. And what I mean by that is uh, a bullet flying through the air or a tank maneuvering in an envelopment or a supply convoy. How you relate those tactical actions to your national policy uh, matters immensely. Uh, and when I say national policy, I mean what the flag expects you to do. You know, what it is that Australia expects of you in whatever country they send you to. So that really is, a, in my mind, a core competency for any junior leader, that connection, that relationship between the two. The second one, I think, is a sense of context because you're not just fighting in a vacuum. This isn't a video game where it's just you in your living room. You have to understand that the world will continue around you as you're fighting. And you have to understand as best as you can, because you can't predict it, but understand as best you can 
how your the violent actions that you and your organization undertake how they're going to influence and affect the broader uh, the broader conflict that you're a part of uh, and understanding that context I think is a necessary ingredient so in some I would say uh, you have to develop your sense of military judgment you have to be able to relate your tactical action to Australian national policy and then lastly to do both of those you have to understand the context in which you fight do you have any other advice for a junior commander who may be about to embark on a plane or on a ship to get to his or her battle? Well, yeah, I mean, I would say a few things. First, I teach military strategy, so I'm pretty biased in this regard, right? Uh, I, I, but I do think um, it's defensive, defensible for me to say that you have to study the use of force um, and the threat of the use of force to achieve uh, political ends. Um, that's your job. That's your profession. It's necessary uh, for a member of the profession of arms uh, because if you're not interested in doing that, then why not do something else in life? Uh, we, all, we all only have so much time on the planet. Um, so if that's not uh, if you if this isn't the right fit, then maybe try something else. But so I would say first study the use of force. Secondly, um, study strategy uh, because you know just understanding war, you know war and conflict from a you know broad historical perspective is useful. It's 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 necessary, but it's not sufficient. When you study strategy, you're studying. Um, the the best way forward or the way that you can successfully navigate through those wars and conflicts. That's what strategy really is. It's uh, the best way forward. So, and when I say that, when I say that, I don't mean study it like a planner, like you're going to go plan an invasion tomorrow. What I mean is study it as a practitioner, so general officers will do much of that planning, and I, for example, in my career will support them. Uh, but none of that planning means anything if that general officer doesn't have skilled implementers of that policy available, um, and you are the implementer of that policy. So it behooves you uh, to understand what it is that those at the top are trying to achieve and why they're trying to do those things. So that's one reason why. Another reason why I think um, society, if they don't, they ought to demand uh, that you are able to um, connect and link those tactical actions to your national policy. Because if you can't do that cognitively, intellectually, um, then the violence that you employ on a battlefield is disconnected from political objectives. It's just sort of no better than the guy knocking over a 7-Eleven. I mean, it's just violence, um, and it needs to have that linkage. You need to be able to defend it, um, both to your society and I would say both, and as well to yourself. Um, and then lastly, uh, your soldiers will and ought to demand that you're able to explain this to them. And I think this is most important because it's, in my mind, a tragedy 
to lose a soldier that didn't understand why he or she was there, where where he or she was when when they pass. Um, every soldier ought to understand how their actions benefit Australians at home on some level, even if it's a tenuous connection, even even if it's a connection that you don't think is a good one or you disagree with it, you still ought to be able to make that linkage for them. And if you are able to make that linkage, uh, their morale, I think you'll find, will be much higher than it would have been otherwise. Finally, we call good stories back home worries. Do you have any good stories to share with uh, Australian junior commanders? Just to put you on the spot. Yeah, I think uh, <laughs> um, this this is one that uh, that I usually don't tell, but I think since it's going to travel to the bottom of the earth, I think I can be safe. Um, so when I went to Iraq the first time, um, this was in 2003, this was just at the end of the ground war, just as the ground war was uh, fading, we were um, in a temporary halt uh, just to the west of Baghdad, um, basically the middle of nowhere, probably what the middle of Australia looks like. Um, and, I was in a an artillery battery, in a howitzer battery, and um, you know we had been there for probably a week or so, just waiting to find out where we were going to be positioned in the country post conflict. You know what was the disposition of American forces after the statue of Saddam fell, um, and this was a this was very difficult to ascertain because we didn't really have reliable census data on where. You know, X number of Iraqis live in this city, so we should put this number of forces in that city. And we didn't really know that. We eventually went to Fallujah, um, which was we were sort of an uh, overwhelmed force for the size of our cavalry squadron that I was a part of. But that's another story. Um, so we're we're in this holding pattern, sort of just west of Baghdad, and there's really nothing out there. I mean, it's just dust and sand, and so. Um, you know, to go to the bathroom, uh, what you would do is you would walk to the far side of, of a large transport vehicle, um, and you know, which would provide some sort of a barrier uh, for the other guys uh, seeing you go to the bathroom. And uh, one day, uh, I had to go, and I quickly had to grab my commander's, my battery commander's, uh, uh, toilet stool, which is roughly, it's basically, you know, a couple of pieces of aluminum with a plastic seat, and you put a plastic bag underneath it to catch your leavings. And so I went around the vehicle and did as you do, but as I did, um, my battery commander was engaged in a conversation with, of all people, and this I'm not making this up, it was an Australian journalist, and she was uh, kind of pretty. And the road, as I was going to the bathroom, I thought they were going to be there for an hour, but apparently my commander was not a very good interview, and he was a quick interview. And her and her security detachment jumped into their vehicle and I could hear the ignition on their, their civilian vehicle turn over. And I realized to my horror at that moment that they were going to drive right in front of me as I was going to the bathroom, uh, number two. And so what I, I did what any 
normal human being would do, I hurried as best as I could. And as I hurried, um, the aluminum legs for the toilet seat shifted in the sand and I literally fell in my own poop. And it wasn't a little bit. We were eating MREs, meals ready to eat, and it was a lot. And it covered all of the inside of my legs, all up and down my legs. So there I was, lying in the sand next to a road with my own poop covering most of my legs and my pants were around my ankles. And a pretty Australian journalist was about to drive past me and likely put me on the cover of some news weekly in Australia. Um, thankfully, and it, you know, the Lord intervened and she stayed longer. Um, so that never happened. But as I was lying there before I started to clean myself up, I honestly started to laugh because I, I don't think you could possibly design a situation in what in, in which you would feel more humble and exposed to the world it was the worst probably the worst moment will be the worst moment of my life and i literally had to expend an entire like 100 pack of baby wipes to clean myself off now after i clean myself off uh the toilet seat was packed with, it had poop in it, and I was in a difficult situation because I had borrowed it from my battery commander. So I packed sand over the poop so that you wouldn't know that it was poop, and I just sort of tucked it back in the back of this Humvee. The next day, I woke up really early to my battery commander yelling, Davis, Davis, which was his driver, and said, Davis, what the hell did you do to my toilet seat? And I just stayed silent, which is what you should do if, if you're in that situation. So that is my war story. It's not much of a war story. Thanks very much for that. Uh, you obviously can't see, but I've been laughing, sorry, at your expense most of that time. I think we all have some embarrassing stories like that to share, and I probably will share them one day too. But thanks very much for sharing that and putting the reality back down to uh, what actually happens on the ground. We can study strategy, but at the end of the day, there's a reality to surviving in the field also. So thanks for sharing that, and thanks for today. Yeah, it was wonderful. I really appreciate the opportunity.